Uh, here at Athey Creek, if you're wondering, we go right through the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And guess what? We're starting the Gospel of Luke right now. Are you guys ready to start a book of the Bible? We finished up Mark Wednesday night, so we'll pick up Luke chapter one right now, if you turn there with me, Luke chapter one. By the way, when we finish this time through the Gospel of Luke, that'll be two times through the whole Bible. Um, back in 1996, we started our first lap through the Bible and we went from the Gospel of John all the way through uh, to Luke. And then uh, that was in, in 2009 is when we made our first trip through the Bible, verse by verse. And then the second time, it's been a little longer uh, from 2009 to the present. So how many years is that? 14 years, or, uh, that's right. Um, so. Uh, probably around close to 15 years by the time we uh, finish up Luke. So a little longer, um, but I love that we get to go through the Bible. The Bible is um, you know, criticized by so many, but uh, the, the more I dig, the more I read, I'm, the more I'm impressed with the holy scriptures, man. It's not just some work that men wrote on a piece of paper. It's not um, just some book of literature. Um, but it proves itself time and time again. If you take a careful look at it, a lot of people have taken a quick glance. Oh yeah, the Bible, I've read the Bible. And I always kind of chuckle when I hear people say, yeah, 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 I've read the Bible. Because the Bible is so deep and so uh, profound and layer upon layer, um, I love that. But today we have one of those um, simple little stories of the Bible that I wanna take a look at as we start the Gospel of Luke chapter one. Um, and I'm just so thankful um, that the, the Bible doesn't pull its punches when it comes to the people of the Bible. You know, you'd think if uh, like some religious groups or, you know, like if you look at the Koran or other religious works and stuff, you'll find that they try to paint people as maybe more perfect than they really are. Um, the Bible doesn't really do that. It shows the flawed nature of even the greatest people of the Bible, Abraham, David, Moses, all with their flaws and sins and, and mistakes and stuff like that, um, which I kind of appreciate. I think it's, it's, this, it's human nature to try to make ourselves as humans look better than we really are, but we're actually really flawed. Um, and you know, it's funny how even as Christians, sometimes I think we like to um, you know, make things look more beautiful. And I, maybe I'm a little cynical, I don't know, um, but humanity is pretty messed up. So when I see little tear jerker things that people put on social media, I kind of go, yeah, whatever. Uh, maybe it's, maybe I'm, maybe I'm jaded. I don't know. But like, like, for example, maybe your grandma has this little plaque in her house, you know, footprints in the sand. Um, you know, it's such a beautiful tear jerking little poem. One night, you know, you have a dream and you see the footprints in the sand. And basically, you know, there's two sets of footprints until, you know, the guy in his life, he's working through the most difficult times of his life. Um, and it's only one set of footprints. And he, and he says, oh Lord, you know, this really bothers me that, that you're not with me during the, it's only one set of footprints. And the Lord says, dear child, it's during those difficult times that I carried you through the difficult. And everybody's like, oh, I'm like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> it's like, uh, cause I know human nature is to drag your heels and there's the Lord trying to drag you in the sand. What are these trenches? What are these trenches in the sand? Um, now, by the way, um, somebody beat me to it, but this is, this is a, a, an additional part, to, addendum to this poem that I thought I'd share with you. Um, it goes like this. One night I had a wondrous dream and one set of footprints were, were, was there to be seen. The footprints of my precious Lord, but mine were not on the, along the shore. Um, then some stranger prince appeared and I asked the Lord, what have we here? Those prints are huge and round and neat, but Lord, they're too big for feet. My child, he said in somber tones, for miles I carried you alone. I challenged you to walk in faith, but you refused and made me wait. You disobeyed, you would not grow. The walk of faith you would not know. So I got tired and I got fed up and I dropped you there upon your butt. <laughs> because in life there comes a time when one must fight and one must climb, when one must rise and take a stand or leave their butt prints in the sand. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. I probably shouldn't have shared that on, on a Sunday morning. But I, I, that's the way I look at things. Um, you know, we're just flawed, weirdo people. Uh, that's just who we are. Um, it always cracks me up when people come in, oh, I find it interesting. You Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. You know, you're sinners. And it's like, good eye there, dude. We're worse than you even know. 
And so are you, like everybody's really flawed. And, and people that think Christians that go to church think they're perfect or better than anybody else. I've not met that person. Um, we're here because we need to be here. We go to church because we are sinners who need a savior. Um, uh, it'd be like you going into an oncology center, cancer center in a hospital saying, I find it interesting that there's sick people here. And you're like, yeah, you're, you're not the brightest person if that's what you see. No, you go to the hospital because you need help. People go to church because we realize we're messed up, weird, sinful people, but good news, we've got the answer, it's Jesus. We're not the answer, it's Jesus who's the answer. Um, well, all that to say, um, so while I take sort of that cynical view of humanity, how it just makes me that much more thankful uh, for our savior, Jesus Christ, who's, who is the perfect one, by the way. Now, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23 declares. And Romans 3, 10 and 12 says, there's no one righteous, not even one. We all have sinned. And that's the truth. But when we realize that dark black uh, backdrop of, of evil and sin in our lives, it makes the glorious gospel that much better and, and greater. Um, so all that to say, um, when we get to this idea of sin and, and all that stuff, what's the worst sin that we could do? Have you ever thought about that? Um, now, at first glance, you might say, well, murder, rape. Um, you know, there's evil sin stuff that happens in the world, grotesque stuff that's happened in the world. That's sin. Well, those are really bad sins, I'll admit. And what, what's interesting, the Bible handles it in kind of a couple ways. Um, the Bible does teach that there's different repercussions for various sins. Um, so if you murder someone, you might get the death sentence or you might get life in prison or two weeks and parole, whatever, uh, in our culture, who knows. Um, but, um, but, but that's just the world's gauging of the repercussion of sin. But, but the Bible says all sin, the wage or the cost, the penalty is eternal death and hell. So even if you told a little white lie, that's, that's called sin in the Bible. And even that is the, the penalty of death. Um, and now you say, well, that's really bad news. Yeah, but that's why we talk about the good news that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what is the worst sin? Maybe it just might be the sin of unbelief. Have you thought about that for a second? Unbelief, because it's unbelief that uh, makes it so that a person cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's unbelief, the Bible says, that's the sin. Well, in theological terms, it says all manner of sin is forgiven. In other words, no matter what you've done, it's a forgivable offense, except for one. And the fancy smancy way of saying it is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's that mean? Well, it, in one word, it really is unbelief. To the Holy Spirit, is, his work is to point to Jesus, to show humanity that Jesus is, remember Jesus said, he, the Holy Spirit, will speak of me. And if you speak against that work of the Holy Spirit and, and blaspheme against that, you're basically saying, I don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the savior of the world, the one who died on the cross for my sins. That's the one unpardonable, unforgivable sin, the Bible says. But all the other sins, as it turns out, is forgivable. That's why, you know, the old preacher, one of my favorite preachers who's been dead a long time, he was in the 1800s, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon um, he said this, every other crime, God touches, uh, pardon me, touches God's territory. But unbelief aims a blow at his divinity, impeaches his veracity, denies his goodness, blasphemes his attributes, maligns his character. Therefore, God of all things hates first and chiefly unbelief wherever it is. What's interesting about this idea of unbelief, there's two levels that I'll talk about today. And the first level is to not believe in Christ at all. Um, we as Christians, I know we have our own kind of language sometimes because we talk about Bible stuff and so we develop our own. And, and what we call, if, if you're a person who's an atheist or you know, uh, do not believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, we just call you an unbeliever because that's, that's what you are. You're an unbeliever. That's right, I'm an unbeliever. But see, the problem is that's the unbelief that is gonna be detrimental to eternity for you, according to the Bible. Well, I don't know if I believe the Bible. Isn't it interesting when you sin, if you're honest with yourself, it's amazing how innately you know, you know that you've crossed some kind of a 
moral line, when you do things that are evil or wrong, and even your heart and your soul will feel the weight of that. That's just the truth, whether you wanna try to admit it or not. Um, but that's, that comes from God, by the way. And God doesn't wanna condemn you for your sin. He wants to save you. The Bible said the Lord would that none should perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. That means to change your mind about it and accept and believe the forgiveness that he's offering to you. Um, that's the unbelief level that is so dangerous because it will cost you eternal life. I hope there's no one here that would say, I, I reject Jesus Christ, I reject the cross, I'm not a believer because that is the one unforgivable sin of all the cosmos, of all humanity. If you read your Bible, that's what it teaches. But as it turns out, um, there's another form of unbelief that I'd like to also address today. And that is, if you're a believer, that is a Christian who believes in Christ and the cross, did you know we still have this really horrible trait as human nature goes um, to be unbelievers still? You know, we know, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven and saved by God's grace through faith, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't really believe that God, the Lord's gonna help me with this or I'm gonna go through, I'm gonna have trouble and I don't believe that God's got a plan or a purpose. You may not say it like that, but if you're depressed or upset or angry or disillusioned, chances are that's due to unbelief. Are you a believer that, guess what? All things work together, are working together for good for those who are called, those according to his purpose. If you believe the Bible, though you'll believe, hey, you know what? It's all gonna work out. Um, everything's gonna be okay. And that would change your whole worldview if that's kind of the way. Do you guys know Christians that are like that? I do. There are Christians, some people might think they're crazy, but they just sort of know, um, you know what, everything's gonna be all right. And it's because they believe. And they have a, a, not just a belief that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and rose from the grave and accepted that and, and are saved, but they also believe it's all gonna work out. And that's the mature believer who has a great strength in faith. We have this little story here in Luke chapter one that shows a very strong, amazing, incredible guy and his wife, um, the dynamic duo, really, of the Bible when it comes to a married couple. This, this is an impressive couple, um, but they're gonna fail, he's gonna fail in the area of unbelief, which is something that might be a good lesson for us to kind of look at. So let's, let's, uh, let's take a look, Luke chapter one, uh, we're gonna look at just a little section of this, uh, maybe 17 verses or so here, uh, starting in verse five. It says there in verse five, there was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. Okay, what do we know so far? They're in the days of Herod. That's bad news, by the way. Herod was a horrible king of Judea. He was evil, wicked, crazy. In fact, did you know that Herod had nine wives, um, the governor or the king here of, um, of the Judean area, uh, you know, by the Romans. The Romans put him in power there. But Herod the Great was an impressive guy in some ways. He built all kinds of amazing things. He built Masada, if you know where that is. He built the Herodian, which is an amazing engineering feat. Um, he built the temple in Jerusalem, for, even for the Jews, uh, which is a shocker. Um, but he did amazing things that way. But there was a saying in Jerusalem at that time. Uh, there's actually, they found writings archeologically about this. They said, it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his relatives. Why did they say that? Well, he had nine, maybe 10 wives. It's debatable historically, but, but of those, he killed several of them. When he kind of got tired of a wife, he'd just kill her. Um, his sons, he had a bunch of sons, but um, when he became suspicious of his son's activity, he, uh, instead of having a father-son chat, he killed them. And that's why, um, that's why they said it's safer to be one of Herod's pigs than it is to be one of his relatives. But what's interesting is you got this couple living under this iron fist of the Roman Empire, but there's the, you're gonna see this couple's impressive. But we also know he's a priest, it says, a priest named Zacharias. And he's a priest because he's of the course of Abiah, which is of the priesthood. And it's actually a very high level of priest. Um, now you gotta understand the priesthood during the first century here was already pretty tweaked out. Like they were not super uh, religious. We know Caiaphas and some of these others that would be the high priest during the time of Jesus, they were just wicked, 
corrupt politicians. So the religious part of Jerusalem was really not that impressive, but we find here a, a guy who's a pious religious guy and he's got a good heart. We're gonna see that in a second, but he's, he's a, a priest serving there in Jerusalem along and his wife, uh, Elizabeth. A couple other quick things. Uh, the name Zacharias means um, God remembers and Elizabeth means his oath. So you put the couple together, you got God remembers his oath. What is that about? Well, we'll see as we go on in the story. Well, it goes on in verse six and it says, and they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. Who gets that kind of a report card in the Bible? Like how many people can you number that were called righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord and blameless? Wouldn't you say that's a pretty impressive resume for this couple? If I were this couple, I'd say, let's just leave it right there. That's enough ink in the Bible for us. Because uh, again, like I said, you know, David, the king, they said, well, he was an adulterer and a murderer and all kinds of creepy stuff that David did. Um, all that stuff's recorded. There's only a few people in the Bible that get out fairly unscathed, by the way. Daniel the prophet's one of them. Uh, he has a whole book of the Bible. There's no record of sin in his life. He, he, he was a sinner just like us, but, but there's no record of that in the Bible. One of the few guys that made it unscathed. Another guy is Joseph of the Old Testament. And I believe there's kind of a reason why there's no record of sin in his life. And it's because he's this perfect picture uh, foreshadow of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, if you know your Bible, uh, you know, types and uh, examples and what have you. But other than that, everybody else in the Bible gets kind of banged around with just record of sin and wrongdoing. You gotta be kind of impressed with Zacharias and Elizabeth so far. Blameless, good stuff. But just because you're blameless and righteous, does that mean you're not gonna have any trouble or problems in life? Um, one of the things that we get wrong is we think the reason we're going through problems is because we must have sinned or done something wrong. We believe that sometimes. In Bible times, that's what they preached more than we hear wrongly preached today. That's what they wrongly preached then. Remember when the disciples walked by the blind dude and said, hey, Jesus, this guy's been blind from his birth. Who sinned? Was it his sin or his mother's sin or your mother and father's sin that caused him to be blind? And what did Jesus say? Anybody remember? No, neither. You got it wrong. This guy's not blind because of his sin or his mother and father's sin, but I'm gonna make my, myself manifest through his blindness. In other words, there's a reason he's blind that you don't even know what you're talking about, but it's not because of his sin or his parents' sin. That was the assumption of the day. Here, we have another couple in the, in the Bible that's, they're amazing, that they're blameless and righteous before God, but what's their problem? Their problem is, it says here in verse seven, and they had no child because that Elizabeth was barren and they both were now well stricken in years. Now they're too old to have children and they've not been able to have children. Why, Lord? I wonder if they wrestled with, Lord, what did we do wrong? You know, I, I've seen that even today in modern times when a couple can't have children for whatever reason and they wonder, what did we do? And it's funny how you can put sort of guilt trips on yourself that aren't even really valid. Um, you have to understand that um, the Lord he reigns on the just and the unjust. The good and bad happens to everyone, um, no matter who you are. The Bible teaches that over and over again, by the way. Um, but not only that, these, 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 this couple, they're just serving faithfully in Jerusalem, but the problem is they didn't have any child and now they're too old to have children technically. Um, but he's serving in the temple. Now, by the way, when was the last time the Jews in Jerusalem at this time in the story, when was the last time they actually heard from God, literally? Well, it'd been 400 years. The last time they'd heard, this is, this is called the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New. It's 400 years of total silence from God. The last guy they heard one was the, from was the prophet Malachi. Malachi prophesied about the prophet Elijah, that he'd come and, and, and minister again somehow. And that was the, kind of the way they left, the end, the Old Testament. The Jews haven't heard for 400 years. You think you're going through a spiritually dry time. Uh, that's 400 years of silence. But you gotta love Zacharias and Elizabeth because not only are they faithfully serving in the temple during a real bad time of Jerusalem's history, but dealing with their own personal problems, 
They're just faithfully serving in the, in the temple there. And guess what? The last time the word of the Lord was spoken 400 years ago is now gonna change because of Zechariah and his faithfulness. That's gonna change. They're gonna hear from the Lord again. Let's see what happens here. So it came to pass, verse eight, that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, that's the course of Abiah, um, by the way, um, verse nine, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. Now, this is interesting. If you study your uh, priestly duties of the first century, this, we kind of know what this is. They called it here the time of incense, which would mean for the people of Jerusalem that, that that would be the time of prayer. In the Bible, whenever incense was offered, it's a type or a picture of prayer. Um, so what was this guy's role, the Zachariah's priest, priest? He got the lot drawn where he was the dude that had a very specific job. And I'm just gonna tell you about it in kind of quicker terms. He was supposed to go in, uh, the people all would wait outside in the courtyard area. He would pass the altar and the laver, and then he'd go into the holy place. Um, and in the holy place, you'd walk in, and he was one of the few priests that got to go in there. And on the right side would be the table of showbread, on the left side would be the, the menorah, the candlestick, the golden menorah. Um, and then this little tiny um, miniature little barbecue, it looked like a little mini Weber barbecue kind of thing there. It was just had some coals in it and it would be burning there. But then he would add incense to the coals of the fire of the altar of incense um, and, and the fragrance. It reminds me of when I was a kid, I used to, my dad give me the chores of, I'd have to cut down the trees that were dead in the forest of our property. And I'd have to buck them up and chop them and get them all stacked as firewood and stuff. But um, um, it burned some of the stuff that was bad, you know. And, but um, I, I remember as a kid, just kind of playing around with stuff. Um, some of those those trees that we'd cut, the sap would just ooze out of the logs. Um, and oh, that's a great smell. And, and it would sit there and the older the logs would dry out and get older, that sap would start to harden and become sort of like chunks. And you could break off the chunks of pitch um, and they'd be like little rocks. But it, I learned if you throw that in the fire, oh, that smells like beautiful fragrance. I, I, like, I love the smell of that. I, you know, some people put the little trees in their car to make them smell better. I literally put a log under my seat because uh, if you find one with pitch, uh, that's, that's some fragrance right there uh, for your car. Anyway, I digress. But that hardened substance, that's like the incense that they would use. They would use these chunks of fragrances, uh, frankincense, myrrh, various substances that were like crystallized, hardened substances that they would come and bring in and they would pour into this little barbecue. Why would they do that? It was a symbol of the prayers of the saints. Um, they would put that fragrance in there and as the fragrance went up to the sky, that was to, to remind the people, when you pray, that's what it's like. It's a sweet fragrance that rises into heaven. Well, how do we know it gets to heaven? We'll keep your finger here in Luke 1 and flip over to Revelation chapter eight. Let me show you that, uh, where the other end. We're looking at it from Earth's perspective. What does heaven see? Revelation chapter eight. We have this amazing heavenly scene, the throne room of God, if you would, in heaven. And we'll start in verse one, Revelation eight. Verse one, it says, and when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of a half an hour. Now, many scholars have wondered, why is there silence in heaven for the space of a half hour? Um, someone once said, because there's no women in heaven. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't say that. Uh, what a stupid thing to say. I, I, would, I would never say that. <laughs> sorry, now I've made all the ladies mad. Um, Sorry. Anyway, verse two, moving right along. No, if you're wondering why there's silence in heaven, uh, we did a whole study in Revelation. You can look that up. But verse two, and I saw seven angels which stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and there was given to him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. What's that? There's a golden altar before the throne of God 
where there'd be an offering of the incense, which would be the prayers of the saints, verse four, and the smoke of the incense, which came with the prayers of the saints, ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. Here's where we see incense being the prayers of the saints reaching the throne of God and going from the altar of the incense of the throne of God right to the Lord himself. Your prayers reach God. That's the implication here. Incense is a beautiful picture uh, of the prayers of the saints. And this was the, the job um, during the time of prayer in Jerusalem that Zacharias had. He would, he would have all the people praying outside. He'd go in and say, I'm gonna offer the incense. So he'd walk in, they'd all be praying. He'd go in and then his job was, back to Luke chapter one, um, then his job was after offering the incense, he would walk out of the holy, holy place, I should say, and go out to the people and give them the ironic blessing. What's the ironic blessing? Well, if you come to Wednesday night Bible study, you know what that is. We always end with that every Wednesday night. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face shine upon thee and be gracious to thee and give you peace. Um, this is the, this, the Aaron's blessing that the priest was supposed to give. He would give it right there. After he all, all offered the altar and incense, speaking of the prayers of the saints, how they reached the throne of God, and then he would come out and bless the people and they'd all go home. That would be the time of prayer. You say, Brett, why did we go over all that? Well, there's an irony here in the story. He's there leading the charge on God hearing our prayers and incense reaching heaven. Do you ever wonder, what do you think if you could guess Zacharias and Elizabeth prayed about? Do you think they ever prayed about having a child? Well, we know for sure they did. I'll show you why as it goes on. And this is, this is gonna be an interesting sort of irony in the story. So it says here, as we continue, um, it says, so he's going in there, doing his little thing, offering the incense in the holy place. And all of a sudden, the story changes big in verse 11. And it says, and there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. And thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. This is none other than the most famous John the Baptist. John the Baptist. This is the parents of John the Baptist. Um, and, and, and this miraculous birth, what's the deal here? Um, now, this is interesting. The name John means God is gracious or Yahweh is gracious. Um, and this angel says, Zacharias, your prayer has been heard. This is that irony. Here he is offering the incense. And, and uh, so do you think this guy's like excited about what he hears? Because his prayers answered, well, well, the angel's not done. The angel's now gonna say, you're gonna give, you guys are gonna give birth to a son named John and he's gonna be great. You know, there's people in history that like to call themselves great. Alexander, the great. Peter, the great. Um, you know, there's, there's all these guys that claim to be great. But if there's ever one dude that could have claimed that, it was actually John the Baptist. Why? Because Jesus said, no man born among women, which is all men, um, are greater, no one's greater than John the Baptist. That's what Jesus said. John the Baptist was great. And there's eight things that we might look at more in, de in depth here on Wednesday night that are listed here. Look at all the things that the angel tells us. In verse 14, thou shalt have joy and gladness and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. But my Bible says Elias, which one is it? Elias is the Greek form of the Hebrew Elijah. Same dude. He'll go in the power and the spirit of Elijah to turn hearts of the fathers to the children and to the disobedient, uh, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. There's eight things there that are really impressive. Um, I'll go over those on Wednesday, but while we got the whole crowd here, I wanna say something about the shocking statement that the Holy Spirit was in John the Baptist. When did the Holy Spirit come on to John the Baptist? In his mother's womb. This, this should be a, a reminder to all of us that guess what? The mother's womb is a place where life exists. We live in a culture that denies that because we're just totally wacko sinners. 
because we wanna have sex outside of marriage and we don't care about the morality of that, then when somebody becomes pregnant, then they say, oh no, what a problem, what are we gonna do? Abortion's the answer, that's what we come up with. Um, and I might even understand a little bit of the callousness on that I don't know, 300 years ago, before we knew what was going on. But with science today and ultrasounds and scans and all the stuff that we have, come on, are you kidding me? Uh, we're just blindly, you know, we, we've done the same thing. You know, the world loves to change the syntax, the wording to sort of make everybody feel okay about what they're doing. It's not a baby, it's not a life, it's fetal tissue. It's a fetus in the mother's womb. Um, when did we start calling babies fetuses? When we were trying to condone and make ourselves feel better about abortion. We used to call it a baby, a life, a person, because it is. Um, and I'm telling you, we've got to stop this crazy, murderous, horrible thing our culture is doing. Um, we just have to. Um, well, Brett, you shouldn't talk about that. You're making people feel bad. Okay, here's the thing. The, the truth is one in three women, probably in this room, have had an abortion. That's the statistics. And by the way, it's not just the lady's fault, is it? All the men that are part of that should equally own this issue. And so you're saying, Brett, you're just making everybody feel bad. Well, I want people to be horrified at murdering a baby from a mother's womb. That should be horribly uh, seen as one of the most immoral things humanity has ever done. On the other side of the coin, I also need you to remember, guess what? Abortion is not the unpardonable, unforgivable sin. If you've had an abortion, guess what? Here's what the world does. They say, have an abortion, it's just fetal tissue and you're not ready for a baby. So, And then the woman goes and does that, but nobody cares about the woman 20 years later. Um, and and the, the hurt and the heartache that comes. No psychology, no, no medical professions are actually really helping with that. Even though from a pastoral point of view, I see women who are hurting horribly because of decisions they've made in times past. I've known men that have suffered because of decisions they've made in times past, because of abortion. And I wanna remind you that that's not the unpardonable sin. The Lord, he still loves you and he's able to forgive you. If you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So while I'm wanting to hammer away at abortion, and I will do that, I also wanna remind you that good news, the Lord is gracious and forgiving and merciful. So if you're running around with guilt in your heart and, and the enemy, Satan, who's the accuser, and he'll accuse you how often? Day and night. That's what the Bible says. He'll accuse you day and night. And he does. You don't have to take that. You can confess and the Lord will forgive you and cleanse you. But this is a verse that reminds us. Here's, here's John the Baptist, who's already filled with the Holy Spirit before he's passed through the birth canal. There's people that are arguing that we should abort children even after they pass through the birth canal. Places and in, in politicians in California that are saying that. Totally a murderous, immoral behavior that we're talking about there. I hope, you're, I hope you as Christians are seeing the Bible. Whenever we talk about the unborn child, um, the Bible handles it as a life that God has created. That's why we Christians are, are the main ones saying abortion is evil and wrong. It's because of, of what God says about the unborn child. And this is just one more example. Here's a baby who's filled with the spirit. Brett, what does a baby filled with the spirit in the mother's womb look like? Are they in there? Hallelujah, hallelujah. Like what's going on in there? No, um, uh, here's an example. The Bible tells us, the Bible tells us um, that when, remember when Mary comes to Elizabeth and announces her pregnancy with Jesus, because John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, uh, just J the B was like just six months earlier. So Mary comes and says, hey, I'm with child and it's gonna be Jesus. And what, what, what does John the Baptist do in his mother's womb? The Bible says he leapt in his mother's womb. What does that mean? I'm just sorry for Elizabeth, man. Whatever, doing cartwheels in there. It's like, come on, John the Baptist, Mr. Holy Spirit filled. Uh, I'm just glad I'm a guy. That's all I have to say about that. And so John the Baptist is leaping and stuff in there. But, um, but just, just, I know I'm off course here, but, but you gotta, when you're talking about this passage of scripture, you have to bring this to mind. Very important. Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. Well, all this good news, man, Gabriel, oops, I shouldn't have told you his name yet. The angel uh, gives, gives old Zacharias this amazing news. So what do you think Zacharias is gonna do? Is he gonna go, yes, hallelujah. Is he gonna jump up and down and be excited um, when he finds out, I mean, this is glorious news, but here's this guy who's a faithful dude. 
He's serving in the temple at a very difficult time and he's righteous before God and blameless. How does he respond to this amazing news? Well, check it out, verse 18. And Zachariah said unto the angel, whereby shall I know this? For I am old, I'm an old man and my wife well stricken in years. Uh-oh, does this ring a bell? Does this sound familiar? Who does this sound like, anybody? It reminds me, I'm not sure what you guys all said. There was like a mix of things. Um, uh, it reminds me of Abraham. Remember Abraham? The Lord comes and says, you and Sarah are gonna have a child. And Abraham's like, oh. And remember Sarah's behind the tent door? She's laughing. And the Lord looks at Sarah and says, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. And he said, yes, you did, I saw you. Like the Lord knows everything. It's like Sarah said, I didn't laugh, yes, you did. Um, why were they, it's because they were old. Abraham and Sarah, they'd be like, Abraham ultimately would be 100 and Sarah would be 90 by the time they'd have a child. Shocking. But do you think Zechariah, the faithful priest, knew the Old Testament scriptures about Abraham? You, you gotta know he knew the story of Abraham, the father of the Jews. But he's doing the exact same thing. Um, human nature is funny, it's very predictable. So here's this angel who's standing right in front of Zechariah and this is funny because Zachariah is the leader of showing, hey, incense is a reminder of how prayer reaches heaven. And it's a, it's a sure thing. That's why I'm lighting the incense, prayer works and it goes up. And that's why the people were waiting outside because of how great prayer is. And, and, and Zachariah, the angel comes and says, your prayer has been heard. And Zachariah's like, how do I know? Come on, you're the lighter of the incense. You should know this, dude. This is your job description. Um, which is kind of funny because I can relate to that as a pastor. We're the ones who are supposed to know what the Bible says, but we too struggle and, and are full of unbelief sometimes. That's Zechariah. This, this righteous dude is doubting um, and unbelieving. How do I know it's unbelieving? Well, this is where the angel gets a little prickly with Zechariah. Um, and it cracks me up how this goes down. So we don't know, we're not supposed to know who the angel is yet, but it's, it's one that freaked him out enough and told him all this wonderful stuff. And then he says, how am I gonna know this? And, and I'm an old man, what's the deal? And listen to what happens, verse 19. And the angel answering said to him, I am Gabriel that stands in the presence of God and I'm sent to speak unto thee and to show you these glad tidings. This is good news. Hello, don't you know who I am? I'm Gabriel, hello, I'm kind of a big deal. Um, how big deal was Gabriel? Did you know that Gabriel, the angel, um, we see him, for sure, three times in the Bible, um, probably more, because there's other accounts where an angel came and gave a message from God, um, but he's not named. But the three times he's named, the first one is Daniel chapter eight, verse 16, where the angel Gabriel shows up to Daniel 500 years before this happened. Um, this is the second time, Luke chapter one, where Zacharias hears from uh, the angel Gabriel. And then the third account is in the same chapter, we'll read this on Wednesday night, when the virgin mother Mary gets a word from the angel <clears throat> Gabriel that she is gonna give birth um, to the promised Messiah, Jesus. Now, um, this is interesting because he starts off, don't you understand, I'm Gabriel, hello? Um, and, I, and, and then we learn something about Gabriel here in Luke in our text. He says, I stand in the presence of God. This is really kind of uh, fascinating, by the way, um, because, um, you know, um, as it turns out, uh, the angel Gabriel, it seems like he's always in God's presence at his throne until there is an important message. It's like God says, okay, this is a big deal. I'm sending Gabriel on this one. This is a Gabriel task. Gabriel's the messenger angel, and he's known for this. By the way, the, the, um, the, the, the name Gabriel uh, is interesting because it means God is great. And here's the guy who gets to stand in God's presence, Mr. God is great, Gabriel. And he's coming and revealing to these people things pertaining to the Messiah. In all three appearances that I just told you about, everybody freaks out when they see him. One thing about angels, you know, I always wonder about people when they see angel, maybe you watch the TV show, Touched by an Angel. And you always picture some, you know, uh, soft, neutered person, neither a he nor she, with lots of noxema or whatever they put on their face. Um, and it's very neutered and very, you know, a little fluttery. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Angels are not these little fluttery things with jingle bells. <laughs> like, where's a fly swatter when you need it? That's, that's not what an angel is. 
But angels freak everybody out. When they see an angel, people wet their pants. That's the idea. In this case, Zachariah, it says here, uh, it says, uh, when Zachariah saw him, he was troubled and fear fell upon him. Have you ever been gripped by fear? That's the idea of what happened to Zachariah. Same with Mary, same with Daniel the prophet 500 years earlier. Um, we talked about the giant angel of Revelation a few weeks ago, and, and these angels are very intimidating creatures. So every time Gabriel comes, he has to calm everybody down. Um, but the angel said to him, fear not, Zachariah, it's okay. I'm a good guy, I'm not gonna crush your skull or something like that. He has to calm everybody down every time Gabriel shows up. Um, but here we learn he's a favored person in that he stands in the presence of God. But Zechariah, even though there's a angel standing in front of him, he's doubtful and unbelieving. That's why Gabriel says, are you kidding? I'm Gabriel, listen to me. I stand in the presence of God. But Zechariah was still, um, Doubting. So what happens? Well, um, it says, I'm Gabriel, verse 20, and behold, thou, Gabriel keeps uh, talking to Zachariah, says, thou shalt be dumb and not able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. This is all gonna come to pass. Your wife's gonna give birth in nine months, but for nine months, you're not gonna be able to say a word. Um, because of your unbelief. Well, Brad, okay, there's a lot of things in the Bible, people make mistakes. Is this really that big of a deal? Well, keep in mind, this might just be one of the more glorious announcements in human history about John the Baptist. And Zachariah should be thrilled. He gets to be the dad of the greatest guy that would ever walk the face of the earth other than Jesus. And that was just announced to him. He's gonna be a great man. He's gonna prepare the way of the Lord and he's gonna be great. Come on, and your wife's gonna have a baby. You should be jumping around with joy. But what's he doing? Moping around with unbelief. He's missing the opportunity to have joy when he should be believing that God's gonna work it all out. And you got an angel there telling you it's all good. And because of his unbelief, the angel says, okay, uh, you know, I'm just gonna kind of help you understand. You want a sign to know? Because remember what he asked? He, he asked, he said, whereby shall I know this? Like, is there proof? Yeah, here's the proof. Pfft, don't speak for nine months. Mm, 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 mm. Now, 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 this is gonna come into play here in a minute. He's not gonna be able to talk. This is funny, for nine months. Um, sometimes I wonder when we say things, you know, um, you know, we start, especially when we don't know what to say, we say stupid stuff. And that's what's happening here. And I wonder if the angel's doing him a favor. Just stop talking, Zacharias. You know, it's the old saying, better to keep your mouth closed and have people think you're a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Uh, Zachariah now is, is speechless. Um, uh, well, uh, let's go on. It says in verse, um, we're almost done here with this passage, but um, verse 21 and remember, there's people outside of the temple waiting for Zechariah. He just offered the incense, saw the angel. Now he's supposed to do what? Go out and say, the Lord bless thee. But check it out, verse 21. And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. Now, good news, the story's gonna work out for Zacharias. He and Elizabeth are gonna give birth. Jay the bee is gonna get born and everything's gonna be great. They'll live happily ever after. This is a great story. But Zacharias misses something of great joy here because of his unbelief. How many of us as Christians walk around missing some of the greatness um, uh, only because we just don't believe? Um, you know, the ending of Mark, the gospel of Mark ended on a similar tone of unbelief. Can I remind you of that? On Wednesday night, if you weren't here, we saw the same thing. People forget this part of the gospel story. Back up one page uh, in the story to Mark 16. And remember, Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose from the grave. That's some good news right there. What do you do when you hear about the resurrection of Jesus? You should be jumping for joy and rejoicing. What were the disciples doing? Mourning and moping. Check it out, uh, Mark 16, we'll start in verse seven. It says, but go your way, this is the angel. This could be Gabriel, by the way, but he's not named as Gabriel, but this angel says, go your way, tell your disciples and Peter um, that he goes before you into Galilee. There shall you see him as he said unto you. The angel saying, don't you remember? He told you this already. We talked about this. 
Jesus told the disciples over and over, I'm gonna go to Jerusalem, they're gonna hate me, despise me, hang me on a cross, crucify me, I will be buried in a tomb, three days later I'll raise from the dead, and I'll meet you all over in Galilee. And he said that over and over to his disciples. But the disciples, everything Jesus said came to pass. They went to Jerusalem, he was whipped and beaten, despised, rejected, hung on a cross and buried. Everything came to pass, just like Jesus said, but they forgot the rest of it, that he was gonna raise from the dead and that he, they would meet, that he would meet them in Galilee. So they're sitting there moping around Jerusalem because of the death of their savior when they should have been rejoicing. And check this out, it goes on, verse nine in chapter 16 of Mark. Now, when Jesus was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And she went and told them, the disciples um, that had been with him, G Jesus, as they were mourning and weeping. So they're sitting around mourning and weeping. Verse 11, and they, when they had heard that he was alive from Mary Magdalene and had not, and pardon me, and had been seen of her, they believed not. They're mourning and weeping and they don't believe Mary Magdalene. Verse 12, it says, after that, he appeared in another form unto two of them, as they walked and went into the country. And when they went and told to the rest of the residue, the other disciples, neither they believed them. The disciples, these are the ones that are supposed to be the, the strong religious dudes. They, 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 they hear Mary who, if you ask me, Mary Magdalene sounds fairly trustworthy. If you know her in the story. She comes and says, you guys, I saw Jesus, he's alive. And like, yeah, whatever. The, the two guys are walking from the road to Emmaus or on the road and, um, and Jesus appears and they go, they go to the disciples. Hey, we saw Jesus. Um, we read about that in Luke 28, uh, pardon me, Luke 24. Um, and, then, and then they also say, we don't believe. And then all of a sudden, la, 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 Jesus appears in front of all the disciples. Right here in verse uh, 14. Afterward, he appeared unto the 11 as they sat at meat or dinner and what did Jesus do? He upbraided them with their unbelief and the hardness of their heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. What does it mean um, that he upbraided them? Um, that's a fancy word we don't use as much anymore. The old King James English, upbraided means to rebuke or to scold. What's the first thing Jesus said to these 11? <laughs> these disciples, when he sees them uh, alive, he says, you know, what, what were you guys doing? Uh, not believing. These are the things I told you would happen. And when Mary Magdalene comes and says, I'm alive, you didn't believe. And when the other two guys came, you didn't believe. He says, what are we thinking? He scolds them. Now he's not scolding them um, for condemnation. I don't believe that. He's scolding them for conviction. He wants their hearts to be convicted. Oh man, we're supposed to be the guys that believe this stuff. And he's trying to get on him. Now, it's not because he's being mean, it's because he knows these same disciples will have to have a different level of faith for what they were about to go through the rest of their lives. He's, he's you know, preparing them for what they're gonna face, lovingly. But isn't that something? The same thing, um, you know, we see the disciples weeping and mourning, they should have been rejoicing of a resurrected savior. We see Zachariah wondering and whining about old age and stuff when he should have been jumping and leaping for joy because he was gonna have a baby and things were gonna be wonderful. I wonder how many of you and how many of us, we walk around this life moping around and wondering why are things going the way they are and I hope things work out and I hope my life is not a waste of time. When we should be going, you know what? It's gonna be awesome. Everything's gonna work out. Oh, Brad, you're just a positive person. No, I, I, I just think the Bible's right. If you're a follower of Jesus, a lover of Jesus, all things work together for what? For the good, for those who are the called, who are called according to his purpose. If you're a Christian, you know, you, you gotta know this, that it's gonna work out. And if we would just have the belief system built into our hearts, have faith and realize, you know, the Lord's gonna work things out and we can walk around with joy, and with the anticipation of the answer, even if this life is hard and brutal, which it can be, to know that it's all gonna work out is truly what we know as Christians. Maybe it won't work out even in this lifetime, but for sure it's gonna work together for good in heaven and all eternity. So we can learn from this little guy, Zachariah. He's missing out on a joyful, maybe one of the most joyous moments should have been for his whole life to be rejoicing of the coming of the Messiah and the coming of his own son as well. You see, um, 
One of the things that I, I wonder about, I wonder if Zacharias and his wife stopped praying years ago. I wonder if this is why he was not really ready to receive the joyful news, because maybe they're, they're so old, he's kind of like, yeah, we were praying for that. Have you ever prayed for something for a long time and then given up on the prayer only to have the Lord answer the prayer years later? That's happened to me as, at a very early age. See, I was a little kid born into a Christian home and Christian neighbors and Christian everybody, Christian friends and family. I didn't go to kindergarten, so I didn't even know any. My first unbelieving person that I met was my next door neighbor. Uh, Dennis Daly, he was the sheriff of our little town. Sheriff Dennis Daly, he was kind of a John Wayne character and kind of a man's man. I really liked Dennis, he was a cool guy. And his son, Kirk Daly, he was one of my buddies. He was my next door neighbor. Um, but I remember when I realized he wasn't a Christian as a little five-year-old kid, I was like, man, Dennis needs to know Jesus as a savior. And so as a little kid, I prayed every day for him. I did for years, every day for my next door neighbor. Lord, please save Dennis from his sins. May he know that you died on the cross and rose from the grave and that he'll accept you as his savior. And I prayed that. But you know, as time went by, years and years of praying that, eventually Dennis and Marge, uh, which Marge was the Kirk's mom, great, truly great woman, loved Jesus with all of her heart. And I felt so bad for her because her husband wasn't a, a, a believer and it was just a tough deal, you know? Um, and then they got divorced and it was shocking to me. And he moved out, moved away. And eventually I stopped praying for Dennis. Um, and once in a while I'd think of him and go, oh Lord, yeah, I hope you save Dennis, you know? And I remember that, but, but then years later, my buddy Kirk called me and said, hey, my dad is in the hospital. He just passed away. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, man. Uh, but then Kirk said, but you know what happened? There on the deathbed in the hospital, I was talking to my dad and he said, Kirk, I wanna pray the sinner's prayer. I wanna become a Christian. And Kirk, his son, got to lead him and pray the prayer with him and he accepted Christ just before he died. Um, and, and I remember hearing that thinking, wow, Lord, you... You answered the prayers I was praying years and years ago, and I even gave up. I gave up on praying for Dennis, but the Lord is still faithful. And uh, I wonder how many times we give up. Now, is there a thing of giving up in prayer too soon? Yes. There's a story in Daniel chapter 10 where um, uh, it's, it's kind of an interesting story where you know he, he's praying and fasting. Here's this 80-year-old guy, Daniel, praying and fasting. Um, and, and there he is in Babylon in captivity, praying and fasting. And, and after 21 days, an angel comes, maybe Gabriel, but he's not named in chapter 10. He comes and says, Daniel, whew, man, I just got here, but I was withheld for 21 days by the prince of the power of Persia, um, which is a demonic entity of that region of the world that was being talked about there. Apparently this angel was coming to give Daniel a word, but he was withstood if you read Daniel 10. And because Daniel was fasting and praying, what happens? The angel says, well, I was there being withstood by the prince of the power of Persia. And then Michael the archangel came and helped me. And if you remember, Michael the archangel, he's the sort of the, um, you know, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger angel of the Bible. He's the, just don't mess with, you know, I'll be back. That's Michael, the archangel kind of guy. And so he thumps this prince of the power of Persia. And so this angel comes to Daniel. Now here's the question. What would have happened if Daniel, fasting and praying, at 19 days said, you know what? I could go for a burger. So he goes to Babylon Burger and gets a, gets a burger and starts eating and forgets praying. You wonder if the angel would have actually made it. Uh, but it was because Daniel, the angel even says, because you were fasting and praying, Michael came and I got to come and deliver you this great message. And he received a great prophecy in Daniel chapter 10. The point that I make is this, is persistence in prayer does pay off according to the Bible. Um, don't give up praying for stuff um, that you've been praying for unless the Lord specifically shows you it's time to stop praying. That actually happens. Uh, do you remember Paul was praying for the thorn in his flesh, was an infirmity of the flesh, some ailment that he had? And the Lord said, after three prayers, the Lord said, stop praying for that, Paul. You're gonna deal with that. That's something you're, you're stuck with. And God had a purpose in that. So, so he'd stop praying for that. But otherwise, it's persistence in prayer. That's why, you know, by the way, um, you know, Matthew chapter seven, Jesus said, ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks receives, he that seeks finds, and to him that knocks, it shall be opened. 
Um, the, in the Greek text of the original language of the New Testament, it's, it's active present, um, which is uh, more like it could and should read really, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. knocking. That's the idea there. Now, all that to say, um, even though Zachariah and his wife seem to maybe have given up on the prayer because they're old, he's almost caught off guard with the answer to his prayers. Your prayers have been heard, Zachariah. But so caught off guard was he that he was still filled with unbelief to where he kind of missed out on the joy. And let me add one more problem when you're a believer who's dealing with unbelief, uh, like Zachariah. He's a believer in God, but he's dealing with his unbelief about this situation. One of the other byproducts of that simply is this, um, disobedience. The disciples that I told you about, Jesus upbraided them for their unbelief. But what was the result of their unbelief? Disobedience. Jesus told them, I want you to go meet me in, in Galilee. But what were they doing? Moping in Jerusalem when they should have been waiting in Galilee, just like Jesus told them. One of the, the dastardly parts of being a Christian who still wrestles with unbelief is not only you'll be kind of miserable, but you'll also find yourself sometimes outside of God's will and plan and purpose. Maybe even blatantly disobedient to what God's asking you to do. Watch out for that because it, it's not a, a great place to be as a believer, as a Christian, a place of unbelief. So you say, okay, Brad, help my unbelief. How do I do that? Uh, they prayed that to Jesus. Oh, Jesus, would you please help our unbelief? Um, what's the way we believe? Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. One of the things you need to remind yourself when you find yourself in unbelief is to remind yourself of scripture that will help build your faith. Remember the story of Zacharias, Luke chapter one, verses five through 22. Just remember that as a reminder, oh yeah, there's a little old guy who was righteous and a good dude, but he even struggled with unbelief, but it was as good as a done deal. John the Baptist came and they all lived happily ever after. It's a good reminder. It's a good reminder when you're doubting and lacking faith to remember that, you know what? All things work together for good. Um, I'm gonna just put my trust in the Lord and the Lord will fight for me and he's gonna be the strength of my life. The things that the Bible tells you, just remind yourself and faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. Um, so unbelief leads to grief and misery. It also can lead to um, possibly actual disobedience. Watch out for that. So a challenge. If you're a Christian, man, walk in faith. Be, be men and women of faith. It's a good reminder. If you're not a Christian, can I just remind you of the glorious good news? Don't, don't miss an opportunity to have belief in Christ. There's, of all the decisions I've made in my life, good, bad, and ugly, the one that I'm most thankful for is when I was a little kid, I, fortunately I was a kid, I almost worry when, if I was an adult, I would have been too smart for my own good and missed something that comes by faith. That's why Jesus said, you must come to Christ with faith like a child. Um, you have to have childlike faith where you kind of say, but I know this and I know that. Don't dump all that stuff. What do we really know? But the one thing I really know is Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave. And because I accepted that work that Jesus did, I'm a forgiven sinner who gets to go to heaven. Not because I did anything to deserve that, but because he did it for me. The Bible says, if you, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, it says, you'll be saved. That's just so good news. You can either walk out of here rejoicing today, or you can keep being miserable with this life because it gets worse. If you're a younger person in this room, oh, life's pretty good, it gets worse. <laughs> Trust me. But for the Christian, this is as bad as it's gonna get. It's only gonna get better from here. Don't miss the wonderful salvation that Jesus Christ offers to anyone who will receive it. Let's bow our heads, please, as we close. With heads bowed and eyes closed, I'm just gonna ask if there is anybody who would like to accept Jesus as their savior. If that's you, I'm not gonna embarrass you or make you get in front of the crowd or say anything or sign up for anything. Right where you are seated, seated I would love to pray a prayer of confession of faith with you um, where you can say, I'm gonna choose to believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I'm gonna acknowledge that I'm a sinner and I'm gonna accept the work of the cross. If that's you, would you boldly just say, okay, I'm gonna acknowledge that by, I'm gonna, everybody else's head's bowed, but I'm gonna look up, give, give you a wave, Pastor Brett, or, or raise my hand so I can connect with you there. And, and you're, I'm letting you know, Brett, that I wanna pray that prayer of confession. And I'll pray with you right where you sit. 
If that's you, just acknowledge that right now and I'll just, I'll just look around for a second. Awesome, you guys right there. Let me just look around for a second over here. Good, right over here, there and there. Awesome. Anybody else? Don't, I'm just gonna look around for a second. Over here, cool. Awesome, I see you over here to my left, good. In the back, awesome. If you're way, I see you way back there, that's cool. If you're online watching, the Lord acknowledges you too. He sees you if you're watching. I'm gonna just pray this prayer of confession. Those of you that have acknowledged that, um, the Lord will hear your prayer. He's able to hear all our prayers. The Bible says he's not short, you know, with running out of energy. He, he can take in all your prayer and he'll see your heart right now. Let's do this, let's pray. I'm gonna ask the whole church to pray out loud this confession of faith. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. That he rose up from the grave and that my sins are forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. And Lord, I pray that you would just bless these people who've just given their hearts to you and accepted the work of the cross. Um, Lord, I know that this doesn't mean that they're gonna be perfect <laughs> from this day forward, but I do know it means they're gonna be perfectly forgiven because your cross, you said you died once for all sin. How thankful we are, Lord. I pray that they'd learn more of your love and your goodness, that they'd grow in faith. Help us all, Lord, in this room to grow in faith Help us from, and keep us, Lord, from unbelief, I pray. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.